Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Material Matters, hosted by me, Grant Gibson. By now, regular listeners will know the drill. In each podcast, we meet a maker, designer, artist or architect who's intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their craft shape their lives and careers. Today, I'm delighted to be in the studio of the potter and writer Edmund Duval. Edmund has exhibited all over the world, including Stockholm, Geneva, Vienna and New York, while his relationship with porcelain and the colour white was examined in exhibitions such as White at the Royal Academy of Arts in London and On White at Cambridge's Fitzwilliam Museum. His book, The White Road, A Pilgrimage of Sorts, took a personal look at the history of the material. Indeed, he's no slouch with a pen in his hand, having written the pop book and controversially re-examined the career of Bernard Leach. Most famously, his best-selling memoir, The Hair with Amber Eyes, which charted the extraordinary journey of his family's collection of Netsky across and beyond Europe, won the Costa Biography Award. And in 2015, he was awarded the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction by the Yale University. Uh, thanks very much for doing this. Huge pleasure. Um, I mean, can we talk about this extraordinary studio first? It was designed by Deborah Saunt, David Hills, DSDHA. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, how important is architecture to your work? I think it's pretty much the beginning of everything, actually. i very, very powerfully conscious of spaces, both to move through and to work in and to put work in, all three of those interlocking circles of response to space. So um, really from very early on, from childhood onwards, I've been kind of very obsessive about, about buildings and about, about spaces. Um, and... Uh, um, Obviously, in my life, I've had a whole series, cascade of different studios from um, an almost um, underground Herefordshire studio built into a hillside to a back street of Sheffield to sharing wonderfully ten, for 10 years with Julian Stair in Peckham mm. and then more latterly here. And in all those different spaces, there's been, I've made different things and, and, and used the space in different dynamic ways. So to get this particular, uh, uh volume, um, in London is, is extraordinary. It's an old ammunition factory. And then to work with my old friends, Deborah and David on converting it into this series of, of, of trial spaces, of spaces where I can, I can try different kinds of work out is, is of course a massive privilege. And what was it about their architecture that you particularly enjoyed? Why them? Uh, they, they're a vigorous, fierce, competitive architectural practice. You know, so they ask questions of you. It's not them, you commissioning them. They'll take you on. <laughs> but what they do is, is very iterative. They kind of ask you what you want and then suggest <laughs> different answers to that. <laughs> they suggest you know, whether or not, for instance, do you need a room to write in? You know, um, here we are in a, a space surrounded by books. In fact, this is actually a, turned out to be a, a, a space where I've been writing on the walls for five years, which has turned into a whole different practice. Mm. You know, do I need a double height space? Yes, because actually I've been doing a lot of work ha uh, suspending stuff. Um, and that's turned into a whole different kind of, of work. So at each point, they're kind of pushing about where you might be going. So when, when you talk about suspending stuff, when you did, for example, that project at the V&A where you can just about yeah. see it in the, yeah. in the kind of ceiling, um, were you here when you came up with that? No. So in fact, that goes back a long, long way, that idea of hiding stuff up high. I, I did something at the Jeffrey Museum um, when I did something called Ceramic Rooms 20-odd years ago. Um, with Kate Malone? With Kate Malone, mm. yeah. And Kate did a fabulous Baroque 
um, interior and I did a, a porcelain room with, a, with an attic space. And, uh, we, and that was fabulous because um, it really pissed people off. <laughs> How so? Pe- pe- well, people kept saying, you know, why can't we see what's in the attic? Mm. And I realized that was, that was it, really, that attics are these odd liminal things, spaces where things get really important stuff gets hidden away or things you really want to reject and to hide get hidden away. And that thinking about not seeing work but knowing it's there turned into the V&A project. Finally, the signs and wonders, that huge thing up in the dome of the, of the ceramics galleries. And that re transformed itself into the thing I did at Turner Contemporary, where I hung these suspended vitrines looking out across the English Channel, um, opaque vitrines, um, sort of cloudscape of, of, of different objects. So, you know, the, the, these, these projects come and go. Mm. Um, but actually, it's very difficult to work, in, work with these ideas if you haven't got spaces to try stuff out. So projects come and go, but the one kind of constant, at least in the last 20 or more years, has been porcelain, which is what we're here in many regards to discuss. I mean, can we talk about what you find so magical about that particular material? Well, how long is this podcast? (laughs) Because, you know, it's actually 30 odd years, Mm. um, possibly longer actually now, um, of of working with it. Um, More than 30 years. Um, and, and, and lots of traveling with it, of course, as well. It's turned into books as, and films as well as, as, as work. Um, what, what do I love about it? Well, it's, 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 it is as close to, to magic as you can get with any material. It's, it's mud, white mud, and yet it turns into something that is translucent. Um, it comes from, you know, a particular place in the world, France, China, or Germany, or England, or wherever you, you, you find your Kaolin. And yet it talks about 2000 years of, of, of migration, of travel, of ideas on the road. It's, it's simultaneously completely demotic. It's completely the white object that you find Absolutely in everyone's kitchen and also, you know, the princely, the princely material of, 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 of every court and every emperor. So it, 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 tr- it transverses, um, all these different things and ideas. And then, damn it, it's the most seductive thing possible. You just pick it up and it's, it's, it's gorgeous in your hands. And I'm right in saying that it's always been clay for you, Edmund. I mean, you threw your first pot at the age of five. I'm right in saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's always it's always been it's always been clay. I mean, how did that come about? How did you throw that first pot? Do you know what the the reason I threw my first pot is the reason like I'm so effing partisan and evangelical about about craft. Because there was a local craft evening class in the local art college that, where families could go on Friday nights, you know, for, it was 1969, you know, 10 shillings a term, um, a, you know, the whole family. And you could do weaving, you could do print work, you could make pots, you could, there was a life class, 
you know, and, and it was packed. And I went with my family and found the pottery and I was five and I started making pots. So, you know what, if I'm going to go to the barricades for anything, it's about giving kids the chance to make a mess with proper materials and learn that from making that mess comes craft and from craft comes beauty. You know, that kind of wonderful living line of, of, of exploration that, that, that has made even generations of people into makers and has been, of course, painfully, bluntly, brutally stripped from the education system. Well, it has. And I wasn't going to go into the word craft in this series of podcasts, but you mm. kind of provoked me now. Mm. Um, it's a tricky word, isn't it? It remains a tricky word, do you think, or not? Well, it's, it's tricky for those who are anxious uh, and want to police the world in small-minded ways and prevent people having recognition and prevent people being thought of seriously and are uh, concerned with um, status. Craft is always going to be difficult for mm. those people because they think that if you make a basket or if you turn, if you happen to love clay, then in some way your discipline is of a lesser degree than, than the other storied arts in the world. Of course, it's not true. I've spent decades saying this in different ways and writing about it and thinking about it and celebrating um, the, the complex, nuanced life of, 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 of things, of, of making things, of using them, of, of working with them. Um, and, you know, at different points in my life, I've thought of myself as a potter, as a maker, as a ceramicist, as an artist, as a sculptor, as a writer. Um, uh, but at every point, I've said that I make pots and mm. write books. And those things are, are, are identity for me. Because I was, I was reading an interview with you in the Tom Morris book, New Wave Clay, mm. which mm. also includes an interview with Grayson Perry. Yeah. And his advice, the, mm. the essay that concludes mm. the book and yours starts it, is not to use the word craft mm. at all. You don't yeah. subscribe to that point of view. I, 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 no, I, I, I don't subscribe at all to it. I'm a powerful advocate for craft. I'm a powerful advocate for art. <laughs> I, entering 50 years now of, of making, making stuff, uh, out of clay, I, it, it, it is more beautifully complicated than, than anyone who's out there trying to separate, demarcate, and police would ever have you believe. If we talk about your family background a bit, if we may, Edmund, your, your mother was a historian, your father was in the clergy, you had three brothers. Um, in your book, The White Road, you mentioned that your childhood was, and I quote, odd. Um, I'm just wondering what odd means, really. I'll own the word odd, actually. <laughs> okay. um, odd in that growing up, in very beautiful sort of ramshackle houses next to cathedrals, both first Lincoln and then Canterbury, so sort of astonishingly kind of haunted places, really. Um, but odd, really, in the sense that the door was always open, and so there was this tidal wave of artists, writers, musicians, politicians, monks, 
Um, you had the Pope. That had the Pope. And Princess Diana. Yeah, not simultaneously, but yes. <laughs> um, so there was a kind of, there was a sort of, um, um, a robust sense of having to make conversation with anyone who came through the door, um, which I think is very good, actually. Um, but also more a sense of a kind of a larger, often political life. My dad was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement, in CND, um, environmental stuff, human rights stuff. So there was a whole political life going on from early on and the feeling that that was, you had to be involved in that as well. Mm. You know, that was part of the deal. Mm. So yeah, that was, and, and so making pots as part of that was felt, felt very kind of, very good actually. I mean, you know. Did the pots take you out away? Was that give, give you solitude or how, how did that interact well, pots, with your pot, family? Pot, pot, pots worked in different ways. One was that I, right from, from being a teenager onwards, I was working every afternoon with Jeffrey Whiting, who worked, worked half a mile away. So I used to walk after school and work with him. He started at the age of 12 or something? Yeah, he, he was the potter in residence at the school I was right. at in Canterbury. And um, he was really became a great friend and mentor. And that turned into an apprenticeship with him. But also he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was around in family life too. So he became a friend of my father's. And so, you know, that, that, was, that, that, that was a really significant part of growing up. Mm. I mean, you're also very academic. You went to Cambridge. You got a first mm. uh, in English. Mm. But then you left Cambridge and you went to the Welsh borders to set up your own independent yeah, well, studio. That, that was never. That was a non-negotiable. So I, I went to Cambridge and, and still made pots throughout my English time. English has been was really important to me. Reading English and I studied with some incredible people there. Who, who would you? Well, particularly on? Geoffrey Hill, the great poet Geoffrey Hill, and. and Jeremy Prynne, um, but but other extraordinary Shakespearean scholars there. So, really proper proper academic life. And I, you know, I had a slight moment when I thought I could go on and keep on doing it and do a PhD. But actually, it was always going to be pots. And so, I just took myself off and and started my first pottery. Why the Welsh borders? That's where my parents had a very small cottage. They were away. That was the cheapest place I could start. I survived a, whole, a, a couple of years there. It was kind of grim. What did your family make of this? I mean, they have this academically brilliant son. Were they supportive of you going off to make pots? I don't think they really noticed, to be honest. I think that, you know, there's a lot going on. There was quite a lot of latitude in our family life. You know, uh, one brother went off, spent a few years in Africa. The other brother was off in... Caucasus, another brother at that moment was off being a Tibetan Buddhist monk in Scotland. So I think we were all kind of doing our own thing. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, they were tolerant. Mm. Mm. So people. <laughs> you, you trained, you talked about training under Geoffrey Whiting, who mm. was an apostle of Bernard Leach. Um, in Herefordshire, you were making stoneware, yeah. stoneware pots, which you've described as being, and again, here I quote, mm. genuinely dislikable. Yes. And, and I quote again, needy. Yes. I'm wondering, what does a needy pot look like? Oh, God, you must have known those needy. You must know them. I'm <laughs> no, going to say totally. you've got a... I, I, no, needy. I mean... ne- ne- needy is, needy is, there's a particular kind of, of pot, which you can only describe as needy. So it says, I'm virtuous. You know, look at me. 
I'm virtuous. I'm so modest, so functional, so discreet, so wabi-sabi, so um, retiring that um, that you ha- okay, you have to love me. Um, and it's it's you know um, it, it's it's a description really of a kind of it's a kind of passive aggressive um, stoneware that dominated, I would say, for far too long, <laughs> the ceramic landscape. Where, you know, and, and, and actually there, of course, I, I, my pots were needy because they were really rubbish. I mean, they were really heavy. I was doing them because I felt I ought to do them, that that was what the identity of being a potter was. I had to, I had to make pots for use. And boy, did you know they were for use. You know, this is a tankard, this is a coffee cup, this is a tea mug, this is a honey pot, this is a jam pot. I mean, incredible. These extraordinary Leachian distinctions of one thing being for one kind of use. So, yes, you know, two odd years there and then abandoning that place and moving to Sheffield. Why, to why, stop. Yeah, I was going to ask, sorry yeah. to, to yeah, yeah. cut across you, but why, why Sheffield? Sheffield because simultaneously it was the furthest place in the UK from any member of my family. Uh, so if you, draw, if you draw a map of the country, that was the furthest distance from any, from any parent or sibling. You were needing to be away from them at the time? was part of it and secondly um it was the cheapest place at that point it was during the appalling minor strike destruction of the, the, the sheffield in steel industry and so i with my two thousand pound deposit i could buy a house and little mester's yard in um the east end of sheffield and your work began to change when you were began there. to change. Um, so began to move eventually from um, needy functional wear into through five years of pretty grim, grim work. Finally touching on porcelain. Finally beginning to make porcelain. Finally so- discovering that that was possible. It wasn't a Damazine moment. It was a gradual shift into porcelain. I wanted to try it desperately, but didn't feel I was allowed. I hadn't allowed myself to do it. Um, and then it was a this extraordinary opportunity arose of this new foundation, the Daiwa Foundation, that was set up around 1990. To um, to take people from the UK and and drop them in Japan with a project, and and I was one of their first scholars when the project was to 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 work on the Leech Archive in Tokyo, and and to have a studio in Tokyo. So I learnt Japanese, went to Tokyo, and it was that moment that really everything changed because mm. at that moment I started to use porcelain in a completely different way. And there was this sort of wonderful, wonderful year of spending the mornings working in the leech archive, discovering this extraordinary material about leech and his friendships, Yanagi, beginning to write my book on leech. My afternoons, in this sort of exhilarated, liberated way, mucking around with porcelain. So it's intellectual and sort of somatic kind of 
year of discovery. Can we talk a bit about the Leach book? You can do whatever you want. Because uh, well, it was very controversial, wasn't it? Your work was moving and it seemed like you were almost torching the house from which you'd been living for the past however long. I mean, were you expecting the controversy that the book I think I, I reread that book the other day. It's very short, I have to say. Mm. Um, I thought it was really good, actually. I thought it was much more measured than I remember. I remember it as being kind of sort of, you know, um, being Oedipal. I think was, can you have an Oedipal book on Bernice? <laughs> you completely can. That's wrong. Um, I remember it as being very angry. But actually, it's, 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 it's an attempt to really contextualise him properly. Um, and I'm not nice about him. You know, I suppose that's the point, is I take him seriously enough to be quite robust and say this is the t- times in which he lived, these are the myths that he created around himself, these are the works that he made which are beautiful, will always remain part of the canon. And these are the works which are really rubbish, really, in, you know, really sort of needy. <laughs> um, and so I think, it's, I think it's actually pretty good in terms of, of placing Leach in his times. The fact that it was controversial was that weirdly, weirdly, no one had written an, a, a proper critical study of him. Oliver Watson had done a good, interesting exhibition about him at the Crafts Council. Um, Emmanuel was very much... Emmanuel, Emmanuel Cooper. Cooper was very much an interlocutor about this and was thinking hard about it. But no one had actually basically bothered... It's extraordinary to think of it. Bothered to go to Japan and spend a year looking at the archives or go through all the stuff at the Crafts Study Centre and try and piece together... what narrative he constructed about himself. So really it was a, it, it, it came out of, it came out of literary criticism, really. It came out of properly studying and thinking hard about how you write about a writer as much as a maker. And so what I'm doing in the book is to look at how he writes the Potter's book, how he writes about his own work, how he denigrates other people's work um, and creates a, a canon in which he shines so brightly. Because I was really reading an essay uh, from the Ceramic Reader the other day that you wrote and you were saying he's really only interested in surface and he wasn't mm. a great thrower. Do you stand by that kind of... Completely. Yeah. I mean, the... You know, his happiest moments were in Japan when he was starting out, when he had wonderful Japanese throwers working for him, and then working with Bill Marshall, who was a fabulous, fabulous potter in St. Ives. Um, but his, his, you know, and some of his very, very late work, when he's almost blind and he's throwing, is, is, is stunning, because he's, he, he, you, you, feel, you feel him making in a, in a much more interesting way. Um, and not making making profiles, <laughs> uh, which is what he he often did. Um, but but um, you know, I, I I really rate Nietzsche, and I rate him s- strongly enough to take him seriously. Was it also was the book also your way of drawing a line under the work that you'd done 
and emphasizing where you were going yeah yeah i mean and 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 why not you know that was that was absolutely part of it it's interesting enough the people who that david leach was very gave what gave him the most fantastic letter letter janet leach was fantastic about it david leach wrote me the most wonderful wonderful letter about it saying it's the first proper book on my father i've ever read mm. so after you moved to Sheffield and you, yeah. you, you spent all mm. the time in Japan, I mean, mm. success came quite quickly, I would suggest. Well, it, after I came back from Japan, it did. Then, then, then I was living in London. Then I did this, this new porcelain, which was much more... Um, it was glazed in celadon glazes, white glazes, and then very you know, gently moved around, sort of dented and bashed around porcelain that I started to do, kitchen porcelain, I called it. Still, a lot of it was functional, mm. had function. Um, and um, first Chelsea Craft Fair that I went to, you know, there I was, first day in the old Chelsea Town Hall, hot as anything, put it out and, and you know, and it all sold, and it was extraordinary. And it was, you know, galleries who I'd knocked on their doors and taken work to them who wouldn't return or wouldn't return my calls. I have to say I'd been rejected by a point, point just for the record, by the Royal <laughs> College of Art, the Society of Designer Craftsmen, um, you know, um, the Art Workers Guild. Um, you know, all these people had Peter Dingley. You know, all these gallery. Gall- so it's the dog sneezing. Um, all these galleries had said no. You know, um, and now and then all these people said, you know, started coming and saying, "Would you like to show with us?" Or, so it was a bit overwhelming. Mm. When you started working with porcelain, did you have to relearn skills? Was it very different from the stoneware you've been working before? Yeah, that's the point. Is that it took me back to um, exploratory making. Um, it, uh, in a way that I hadn't had since childhood. So, you know, the, the, when you're beginning to make a pot, imagine you're a child and you're beginning to make a pot and you're, you're throwing some stoneware on a, on a wheel and it flops, you know, as it does. And you look at this flopped bowl and you see that that vessel is simultaneously a, 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 a bowl that has gone wrong, but also it is simultaneously, uh, you know, this extraordinary sculptural object. That's what any pot that's gone wrong is on the edge, metamorphic, poetic edge of lots of other things. And then you get yeah, trained out of you so that you can sit with 60 pieces of, 150 pieces of eight-ounce balls of clay next to you and you can throw... 150 stoneware mugs, which are absolutely the same, damn it. You know, and that's a hugely significant part of your life. But then to relearn the beauty of things going wrong, which was what porcelain did to me, and to learn the joy of this odd, complicated, absorbing process brought me back to pleasure. Why is it complicated? What's complicated about porcelain? It, it doesn't want to move in the ways that you want it to move. It's impossible to throw large objects from. You have to work quickly and decisively because it gets tired. 
um, it, it, it has a tendency to look at you and, 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 and stop midway if you're not, if you're not throwing in, in it with, with sort of vigor and decision in your heart and your hands. Um, so working out how to make things which are beautiful out of porcelain but not perfect was really interesting because I, I, I'm not Lucy Ree. I don't want to make a perfect teacup out of porcelain. I want to make something that you want to pick up with both your hands. So learning that route into, into porcelain and out again was, 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 was absolutely wonderful. And did you have a sense, the Chelsea Art Fair happened, mm. you sold all your work. Did you have a sense of where your career would go, the kind of work you would be making from that moment? Well, I began pretty soon after that to start to, 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 to make the experimental work, which I've now, has now you know, become my life. So a couple of years after that, I did my first ever installation um, on the floor of a gallery called Egg, in, in, in Knightsbridge, um, my first ever cargo piece on the floor, 60-odd pots just arranged dynamically and dangerously on the floor. Soon after that, I did my first architectural installation at High Cross House, hiding work again in, in the cupboards, much to the fury of, of, of various people who couldn't find the work. But, but, but began already to start to move from sort of white cube craft gallery exhibitions into more more experimental work. And it's often, the way you... often often working with the series, often working with installation, often thinking how can you put put porcelain vessels together in dynamic ways in different spaces. Because it's also, yes, the way you frame your pieces has become more and more important. The yeah. vitrines and, and the way they're yeah. displayed. So, 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 so that journey which was from finding buildings and putting work into them, um, I, finding the, the, the places where sculpture can happen using the vessel. That led me to Kessel's Yard, which is a place I knew and loved, obviously. Really significant exhibition there. Um, and then gradually into trying to find, um, find ways of holding these installations so discreetly in the world. So not just borrowing cupboards or floors or shelves, but actually finding, finding structure, lucid structures to hold, to hold them. And that led into the vitrine. Because there's something, and we, we've talked a bit about your relationship with architecture and, and the, mm. the, the, the great line about architecture is that it's frozen music. Yeah. There's something very musical, it seems to me, about, about your pieces sometimes. I hope so. That's conscious, I presume. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 conscious in that in that um, you know I live with music, obviously, but I also live with the idea of that objects have sound for me. They they the way that you arrange objects in the world has um a, 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 has a resonance. Um, I'm on some spectrum of some description, so that when I see a group of objects together, it, it either turns in, it, it has a musical or a verbal 
resonance for me. So I, I, I see objects and hear music or see words and see objects. So it's a very odd kind of connection for me between, between all these different worlds. So when I'm making um, um, sculpture with vessels in vitrines, it's obviously a kind of notation. It's a kind of way of keeping rhythms or resonances alive in the world. There are frozen music in that one. Mm. And obviously, I mean, we talk, touched on it a little bit, but the writing has been latterly particularly very important to your career. Was that always part of the plan? Oh, God, if there had been a plan, I wish someone had told me. There was, there's never been a plan. Has there not? No plan. The books have happened when they needed to happen. They've unlocked problems for me. I mean, the you know, the Leach book you mentioned, I wrote a book on 20th century ceramics, which is actually just an attempt to try and find find precursors for installation. The whole book is an attempt to find a history of installation for ceramics, which I think I did. Um, the Hell with Amber Eyes was a very real way for me to, to try and explore identity my own identity and that of my family, father's family. And as my children were growing up, it was a very profound need to, to, to do that journey and to, to discover who I was really, who I am. And it used objects. The White Road, absolutely an autobiography. No. Um, but also a meditation on, on, on white, on the why I've been obsessed with white for 50 years, 50 years, odd years. So no plan, no plan, no plan, no plan. Mm. But books, books and objects do, do come in and out of each other's lives the whole time. You know, they, they really, you, you'll notice that as you walk around the studio. You know, here we are surrounded by, by, by projects and di- piled up in different ways, mm. you know, um, bits of poetry and a Malevich teapot over there, and you know, God knows what's behind me. Uh, so, I suppose as I kind of at this point in my life, I kind of think I'm allowed to say that it's one practice, you know, the, and the one practice is turns out to be exhibitions, installations, books, talking. So they dovetail. They perfectly. really, well, imperfectly, but imperfectly, but, imperfectly but, but, but they're what I want to do. And how, how do you, I mean, can you, can you change gears? I mean, is it a change of gear between leaving the wheel to sitting at your laptop or however you write? Do, you occupy, do they occupy different mental spaces? Not really. Not really. Um, and... What's strange is now there's a whole new way of working, which is to, you know, writing on walls and and making texts happen in huge spaces. I mean, I'm working on this library at the moment for Venice, for the join the Venice Biennale. It's, it's a, a library of migration, two thousand books written by refugees over the last thousand years, held within an architectural a space I've designed the walls of which are porcelain into which I have written the text. You know, is that 
is that is that a book? Is it a text? Is it a sculpture? Is it ceramic? What you know? Search me, Grant. Mm. I haven't a clue. All I know is that it feels to me a it feels to me a um, um, a really exciting painting mm. too, because obviously the White Road, which is the story, the history mm. of, of porcelain, mm. um, was very fragmentary, mm. small, tiny chapters, yes. yeah. which are reflecting the, the, the fragments of broken clay, I yeah. presume. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Good. It's all right. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I, I'll take that. Yes. No. It's, it's, it is a series of fragments, and it's actually constructed like an installation. So it's you know there, there you know there are bits of bits of text on page which have a very strong relationship with how I use empty space in my vitrine. So absolutely, yes. Mm. Thank you for noticing that. Wish more people had said that when the book came out, but never mind. <laughs> it got mixed reviews, I, I guess it's safe to say. I mean, yeah. d- does that bother you? Well, I'd be a saint if I didn't care about reviews. Um, you know... Um, I wish I could lie and say I, reviews never bother me. I mean, of course you want people to like what you do. I mean, but at the same time, I'm a realist and know that you can't write one book which everyone loves and, you know, sells a gazillion copies and is adored and then follow it up with another book which you really, really want to write and get that same reaction again. I, you can't do it. You know, all my writer friends tell me the same thing. Mm. You know. I read the lecture you gave mm. nearly 20 years ago where you said it was vital for makers to find and develop their own voice, yeah. that ceramicists in particular, I think mm. makers in general, probably mm. uh, were too quiet and mm. silent and into that vacuum stepped other people, probably like me, I, I, I don't know. Um, but do you think things have changed since then? Yeah. In what way? Well, gloriously, there's a lot of clay around. There's a lot of um, of people owning owning their creativity with clay. Ceramics are in a wonderful vigorous state at the moment um, and that is I think leading to different ways of expressing that life it hasn't touched at all the stuff I thought it would touch which is elderly white middle-aged art critics who still don't give a toss about ceramics or fibre or anything else. Unless it's Annie Albers. Unless it's Annie Albers, you know, unless it's Annie Albers. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's not a bad moment. I think, I think things are changing, um, but it's not changing in the way that I thought it would change. Thank God for that. I mean, it's, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to... to to have tried my bit over the years polemically to have written a lot and uh, written about a lot of people, you know, um, as well in order to try and get things moving. Um, um, and I'm sure that people are doing wonderful things 
talking for themselves and not letting other people talk for them. Well, that's brilliant. Edmund, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very, very much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for coming.